0: Um, We are in Exodus 34, and we're actually uh, getting to the place where we're going to be done with Exodus pretty quickly. Um, In some ways, this is the pinnacle of Exodus. Um, This is um, God revealing his glory to Moses. Um, And in a sense, it's what the whole book kind of moves toward. Um, Let me do a very, very... Very brief review, um, because it has been a little bit since we've been here. But Exodus 34, um, Exodus, we're actually going to start back a little bit in Exodus 33. It's Exodus 33 where God says, I will not go with you to the promised land. I'll send my angel, I'll clear out the people, I will give you the land, but I don't go with you. And it was at that point that Moses then establishes for us a really important principle, and that is that the favor of God and the presence of God are linked together. Um, Because Moses makes the argument, you cannot tell me that I am favored and then remove your presence from me. Um, The favor of God and the presence of God go hand in hand. Um, And then Moses puts together this formula where he says, I'm not going to write it all out, if I found favor, show me your ways that I may know you, know God, then I might find favor. And it's interesting that it's a circle because it never stops. It's a, it's a, um, a spiral. I guess I should be going up rather than down. It's a spiral. Um, favor of God refers to his presence. Um, But what we really want to do is know him better. So we need to know his ways, and knowing his ways, showing me your ways, I believe implies that Moses wants to be obedient to his ways. (laughs) It isn't enough to know him, you have to be obedient. By being obedient, we know him deeper. By knowing him more, his presence is more real to us. We then have more favor in a sense and we go through this cycle. Now, as Christians, we do understand that God has made us promises about his presence with us. Uh, God will never remove his presence from you if you are a believer. So in a sense, you can sit back and say, well, I don't have to worry about this, but we all understand what happens when you stop seeking the Lord's ways when you stop wanting to know him, you're going to feel like God's presence has left. It hasn't, but you are now cutting yourself off from that sense of the pre- presence of God. Um, I remember an old joke that was told years and years ago as a pastor told it. This was back in the days when they had bench seats in cars. And this older couple was driving out of church and in front of them is a, a wet couple. And the newly led couple looks like one head with two bodies. She's scooted right over against him, and they are just, and the older woman says to the husband, who's behind the steering wheel, she kind of sighs. And he says, what's wrong? She goes, well, look at that couple. She goes, we used to be like that. He's like, yep, we did. She goes, what happened? He says, I haven't moved. And, and that in a sense is what we do. We feel far from God, God hasn't, God hasn't moved. But we've, see, we've decided we don't want to know his ways anymore because we've decided through whatever course of action that we're not willing to be obedient. We're not sensitive to his promptings. We hear him speaking and we say no. Or we deliberately sin and say, I am going to do what I know is wrong. But sometimes it's really subtle. Sometimes it's just God is prompting me to speak to that person. Nope, not gonna do it. Or God is prompting me to do this and I feel that movement and I simply say no. And what happens is this stops. Instead of going up and getting to know God more, we we stop. So um, Moses appeals to that idea And that is why the question that Moses asked God or the request, it's not really a question, is show me your glory. And so that was what we talked about two weeks ago. Show me your glory. Um, The glory of God is a difficult concept to grab onto. Pastor Scott dealt with it last Sunday. Um, But I think, and I think Scott hit on these points, it has to do with God's reputation, his fame, Um, but it also has to do with his works His works reveal his glory, and it has to do with his attributes. And I don't think any of them are exactly God's glory, but they reveal God's glory. God's glory gets revealed to us. And so Moses asks, show me your glory. Uh, That is a question that all of us should be asking God. Hopefully sometime between two weeks ago and now, you've actually prayed, God, show me your glory. Reveal yourself to me because that's what Jesus says in John 17. He says, praise to the Father that they might see my glory. God wants us to see his glory. When we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. We are in 2 Corinthians being called upon and they use this passage to be transformed from glory to glory as we gaze upon Christ. Uh, So that's the goal. So that's the, the, the lead-up to this. And what God says when Moses asks to show me your glory, God says that he's going to do two things. He is going to have all his goodness pass before Moses. So I'm just going to do it this way. He says, uh, I will reveal to you my goodness. And second, he is going to proclaim his name. And third, he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will be gracious to whom I have gracious. He is going to declare his sovereignty. And that's where we'll get to today. So let's start in verse um, 19. And while I do that, let me pass this out, because they like to keep track of who's here. Um, Verse 19 of chapter, uh, let's go back to verse 17, and we're going to read down through to chapter 34, verse uh, 9. He says, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of a rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze the opposite, graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sins and take us for your inheritance. Um, So um, the first thing that Moses, uh, well, God says these things, and then he tells Moses, um, I can't answer your request in its entirety. I cannot show you all of my glory. If you were to see my face, you would die. And so God is gonna put him in a cleft of rock and cover him, and then God will pass by. Um, I think there's a lesson there. I don't think it's the primary lesson, but God does not always answer our prayers the way we want him to. There's an awful lot of things that we pray for that if God gave us exactly what we want, it would be bad for us. Uh, We may pray for our circumstances. We may pray for healing. We may pray for, um, you know, that God take care of this problem, and it may be that God doesn't want that. We may pray for success when when success would be the worst thing to have right at that point for us. Um, and God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we expect him to. We know that. But he doesn't, isn't going to answer Moses' prayer exactly. But he is going to give Moses everything that he can give to Moses because he is a good God. Darla.
1: there was a time when they weren't sinful beings and they weren't filled with them, and they walked with God in
0: the garden. So I was wondering if that was the result of the do Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And it's hard to know whether when he walked with them in the garden, he kept part of himself hidden as well. And so I wouldn't know the answer to that. Um, I do know that there are angels that in heaven cover their eyes, but there are also some angels who don't cover their eyes, who gaze upon God. They uh, gaze on God with uncovered eyes. So um, it definitely is a sin issue, whether that's it, the only issue, I don't know. Regardless, Moses cannot see it, and so God's going to cover him. Um, There was a pastor, I'm terrible with names, because I have to learn 100 new names every year, and my brain is just full, Um, the pastor who came from Masters, what is is it? Yeah, I think so. Um, He spoke, preached on Jesus passing them by. You remember that sermon, the walking on the water? And it says that Jesus passed them by and everybody tries to figure out what he's doing and his take on that was whenever we see God pass by, he's revealing himself. He passes by Abraham. He passes by Moses. Jesus passing by reveals God to people. God is going to reveal himself to Uh, Moses. And he takes him up onto the mountain. Now, something really interesting happens before Moses goes up in the beginning of 34. What does God ask Moses to do? Cut two tablets. tablets, And God's going to write on them the words that were there before Moses broke them. Uh, This is really significant. What does it mean that he's going to take up two tablets? What, what does that imply? <laughs> no, God is, he's not going to, ta- Moses isn't going to write them, no. God's going to write them. He's going to write the same words that were on there, that were on there before. Was anyway. that? He's
1: anyway.
0: Yes. Um, he's reestablishing the covenant. He is entering back into covenant <coughs> with the people of God. When that, bro- when that was broken, in a sense, for all of this time, they have been living outside of the covenant. Now the covenant will be reestablished. It's really confirmation that God is now entering back in to his relationship with Israel. Moses' intercessions have worked. They have brought God and the people back back together. Of course, it's God's initiative, but they've brought them back together. So, um, And then Moses goes up onto the mountain, and he does exactly what God says. God stand, sends and stands. And now we get to the part of the passage that uh, we're interested in. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, or actually preached. And it says, the Lord, the Lord, and in my Bible it says, a God merciful, and it goes on. Um, the actual um, there, there's no punctuation in the Hebrew, and it's Yahweh, Yahweh El, is what he says. Uh, El being the word for God. It's the only time Yahweh and El are put together in the Bible. And so the way that the, we've chosen to translate the ESV is the Lord, which is Yahweh, the Lord, so comma, comma, a God. But it could be the Lord, the Lord God has said these things, or is this who I am? I am the Lord. Uh, We mentioned this last week when he proclaims his name, or two weeks ago, his name is I am. And that is a study all in itself. So let's see if we remember. What does I am imply? What is he preaching to, to Moses when he says I am? Yes, he is eternal. It isn't I was or I will be, it's I am. He is the eternal I am, so we're talking about him being the eternal God. The beginning and the end, no uh, time when God did not exist. What else? He is not limiting himself in any way. When you add something, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, if you add something to this, you limit yourself. If I say I am human, then that means I'm not any other thing besides that. As soon as we put, we say, it's impossible for us to say, I am. We are always gonna add something to it that limits ourselves. So the idea is that God is unlimited in who he is. Uh, He doesn't uh, limit himself. Now, certainly he's not evil and some other things, but the idea is, is that he is unlimited. So we see his eternality. We see that he is unlimited. Uh, We really see his omnipotence here, his omniscience, his omnipresence. Uh, All of that is revealed in the name of God. Um, Anything else in the name I am? I'm sure there's so much more. (laughs) But um, that is what he is proclaiming to Moses. And he is God. And there is no other God. Uh, So that is what what he proclaims. And now he is going to have his goodness pass before. So let's, let's talk about goodness first. What does that mean that we say God? I mean, we have that phrase, right? God is good. Boy, it's been a long time apparently, so we'll try that again. God is good all the time, time and all the time. We used to say that all the time, God is good. What is the goodness of God? What does that imply to us? we say that somebody is good, or that something is good, or that even God is good, what does that mean? He's going to specify for us some things, and we'll look at that in a second. What is the goodness of God? What does it mean to say that God is good? It, well, absence of evil. Okay, absence of evil. So there's, there's nothing in there that would be a tainted motive or something else. Okay, was that? okay so that would be almost the exact opposite that his his ways are good which is um so not malicious absence of evil
1: pure.
0: what is that pure okay pure Ron.
1: romans uh, 2 4 says this i don't know if it applies, but it says or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and patience not knowing that god's kindness
0: Okay, and that is, it's his kindness or his goodness that leads to repentance. Yeah, Uh, that would be an aspect of his goodness. Kirk. He benefits us. I mean, it's really in relationship
1: to an object, right? He's good to us or he does good things. So things for our benefit, like the Father who did, you know, food, and the rock.
0: Okay. So in that case, then it's it's referring as much in that sense to the object that in order to be good, you have to be good to something. Some of the other ones were referring to God's character itself, the absence of evil, no maliciousness. Um, but this refers to the, the the outflow of this. So when you're good to someone, you are thinking of them above yourself in a sense. If you're if you are good, in fact. Um, I was reading uh, Packer's book on this this week, and he linked goodness and generosity together. If you are good, you will be generous. Generosity is the outflowing of, of goodness. Uh, so a person who is, is good is also in a sense generous because I'm thinking about the other person and I want what's best for mm-hmm. them, and I am, my goodness is overflowing to them. So you think of James, right? Um, where he says, you see a poor man, and you say, be be well and be fed, and then what does James say? What good is that? Because it doesn't flow out to an action. So God's goodness is going to be an outflow of action toward us as well. It's not just his character locked inside, it's radiating out to us. Somebody had Darla...
1: Yeah. So things that are beneficial for our relationship with him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I would agree. Scott. He's the standard for goodness. Without him, there's no standard for goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I, I think that even if a person had no concept of, of God, they would still recognize goodness. Um, they might because of you know, it might be that if you help somebody, they think there's a hidden motive. But we would still identify certain things as being good or, or, or not good. So um, this, is what, um, this is what Packer says. It's um, a disposition to give to others in a way which has no mercenary motive and is not limited by what the recipients deserve. Okay, sounds a lot like grace, but let me read that again. It says, a disposition to give to others. That's the goodness part, but which has no mercenary motive. There's no evil part to that. And it is not limited by what the recipients deserve. So goodness is not, we don't look and say, that person doesn't deserve this, therefore I won't do this for them and we have no mercenary motive. It isn't that I'm giving to get back, and God is is good. Um, The uh, reformers talked about this. They actually broke God's goodness up into two aspects. One is, uh, we call it common grace, that every single person on the world experiences the goodness of God. And as Christians, we receive an extra measure of grace, a special grace or an efficacious grace, And that can be summed up this way. God is good to all in some ways, and he's good to some in all ways. He is good to all in some ways, and he's good to some in all ways. Um, and, And that's true, if you are a believer, God is good to you in all ways. Everything he does is good. So Moses now gets to see the goodness of God And this is what God says. So we can now list the good qualities of God. He is merciful. He is uh, gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I think steadfast goes with both of those. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's abounding in steadfast faithfulness. Of course, faithfulness would have to be steadfast or it wouldn't be faithfulness. Um, and he keeps steadfast love. Steadfast love is, is um, mentioned twice, so we'll put it down twice. He keeps steadfast love for thousands And he forgives iniquity. That's interesting. He breaks it down. He forgives uh, iniquity, transgression, and sin. All right. And then he says something that we might question. <laughs> because what does it say next? He will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will not, leave the unpunished. He will not clear the guilty. Well, that we, part of his character? Just, we'll get to that in a minute, Steve. Uh-huh. We'll get to that in just a minute. Okay. Um, and then what's the next one? He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation. Okay. Wouldn't we have just loved it if he had stopped right here? Well,
1: that's where a lot of people do stop.
0: Yes. I mean, that would be really cool. It's like, okay, this is, this is fun now. <laughs> the issue is that right there. But we don't want to ignore the other part of this. Uh, the other question is, is this, I'll let you think about this, are these two a part of his sovereignty or are they a part of his goodness or both? Okay. So I, I wanted, as we went through this, I wanted to think about this in terms of what Moses knows. For for us, we go immediately to the cross, which we should. We're believers. We have the whole scope of history. Um, where would Moses have seen in what he knows, God's mercy and grace and slowness to anger, steadfast love, faithfulness and forgiveness? Where does he see that? Uh yes, in his own life. I mean, he did kill somebody as a means of he thought he was you know, before he became made now, he still killed somebody. Okay, and God forgave him forgave him, showed him mercy, graciousness. But he, but he forgave the people too, who had built idols. Yeah. He's he's um Okay, so he's forgiven the people, it seems like, because he's re reestablishing the covenant. Okay. And get my people and tell my people, let my people go. That whole establishment of the covenant, and he sees not clearly guilty, of it. and he sees looking back with mercy, slowed anger, graciousness,
1: and all of those in one, just in the nation of Egypt itself. Yeah. And the Exodus.
0: Good. I, I While you were saying that, I just occurred to me um, we would make a distinction here between those who repent and those who don't. Okay, almost every Bible commentator will do that. So otherwise we have a contradiction. He forgives but he doesn't forgive. Now he forgives those who repent, he will not forgive those who are uh, unrepentant. And the Egyptians were unrepentant and he got to see that happening to them. Um, The story of of the Bible up to Moses' time is really the story of individuals until we hit the nation of Israel. And you can go right through and think of Adam and Eve who sinned and God provides a way of dealing with that sin. He kicks them out of the garden, but he is merciful and he is gracious to them. Merciful in that he, um, we would say mercy is giving them what they don't deserve. He allowed them to live after sinning and graciousness is not giving them what they do deserve. Well, that would be graciousness. Mercy, he, um, what was that? Withholding what giving Yes. So mercy, he withheld the sentence of death. Graciousness, he says, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. We have the proto-evangel in there. Um, we see slow to anger with Cain. Um, we see um, Mo- uh, Noah and God slow to anger and uh, loving and faithful and merciful and gracious to Moses. And you get to Abraham, and you see all of his stuff that he goes through, and yet we see the love and the mercy and the grace and the faithfulness and the forgiveness for him and for Isaac and for Jacob. And the whole story, all the way through, you see this. So this is what Moses is looking at. These are the characters that God reveal. So, Rod. You know what? I didn't put time into that. Um, Why don't you make it a study this week and get back to us, Rod? Uh, I know there's a difference between them, and to me it wasn't my my focus as I was doing this. So this, like I said, is the difference between me and Scott. Scott would take much more time going through. So uh, there is probably a difference here, but we get the idea. He's a forgiving God. All right, well, let's go to here then. Um, let's, let's assume, and I, I do, that this is a part of his goodness as well. Um, this one right here, I think, is pretty straightforward. Because he will not clear the guilty. This has to do with his justice. Right? And God would not be a good God if he was not a just God. Um, we feel it intuitively. When we hear of some horrible heinous crime and then we hear of that person getting off it just is like that's wrong Um, if you were to tell people and in fact it's an interesting thing I was listening to Dominic's sermon that he preached on Psalm 51 listening to that yesterday I was driving back from Sacramento I had a conference this week up in Sacramento and he was talking about talking with his friend whose father who was a police officer who basically, when he said, God will forgive sins, he said, then I don't, wanna, I don't want that God because I've met some really horrible people. Um, and and that, that's the cry of the heart for, for justice. If God was not a just God, he would not be a good God. Uh, interesting, and Packer points this out in his book on the goodness of God, uh, he actually goes to the verse in Romans Romans 11:22 it says, behold the goodness and the severity of God. That there is a flip side, and that is if you spurn the goodness of God, God is very severe. The nation of Israel finally, that God is slow to anger, but they finally broke the covenant long enough and often enough that God said, that's it. The consequences follow and the severity of God ultimately leads to divine judgment upon sin. Um, and Packer points out that it wasn't until the beginning of this the 20th century that theologians began saying, well, God can't do this and be good. He actually goes through this passage and he says, the problem is when you say that God is not just, now you have a problem of, with evil. And immediately the problem of evil comes in. Well, how can he be a good God and there be evil in the world? Um, that the, the, there isn't a problem if we believe in God's justice. So, now, but this is for the individual. What about this one here? Why does God visit the sin to the third and the fourth generation? That doesn't seem fair. It almost doesn't seem just. Oh, by the way, I said seem. I'm not a heretic, okay? <laughs> but who's your third and fourth generation? Well, grandchildren and great-grandchildren, right? That takes you down to the fourth generation. Could be great-great-grandchildren but Let's just go to great-grandchildren. Why do the sins of the parents affect the great-grandchildren? And how is that just that God does that? We have five minutes. <laughs> and Steve and Bonnie have to leave, but they want to stay, for, but that's the way that it goes. Um, so I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm just going to throw out my ideas. You, you can disagree and we can talk about it next week if you want to. Um, I, I think what we're seeing here is a distinction. This is this is an individual thing. The, the, we know from Ezekiel that the sins of the, the, the no one is responsible for somebody else's sin. The sin of the father is not passed on to the son. The son doesn't have to be responsible for the sin of his father or vice versa. And that's really clearly stated in Ezekiel. Um, Every man is responsible, every woman's responsible for their own sin. And if Christ doesn't cover it, then you pay for it yourself. But I think there's always two separate aspects to sin. And one is the spiritual consequence the other is the effect that it has on the world around us and God never as far as I know takes the consequences of our sin um, and and eliminates those we live with the consequences of our sins what I mean is this I go to the prison today there's a bunch of those guys who are solid bible-believing Christians but you know what they murdered somebody and guess what They're in jail for the rest of their life. God does not, when they receive Christ, remove that consequence. Um, There is, according to Proverbs, consequence for sin. Uh, You cannot, as a, a sin, in fact, it's the fool who says there is no God. It's the fool who believes I will be able to avoid the consequence of my sin. I think of this week with Harvey Weinstein that all was this week, right? I think it was <laughs> where uh, here's this. If you don't know, I'm sure everybody does. But the, this perverse, immoral man who has for 40 years abused and, and hurt other people. And he thought he would get away with it. And you know what? He might have. Because there's a whole bunch of directors, if you go back 20 years ago, who are dead, who did exactly the same thing. But what happens is that passes on. And actually, if you think about, it's, it was interesting to me watching it. All the actresses who are coming out saying, yeah, he abused me and he did this. Um, and then they'll show pictures of them with Harvey. And they're all wearing practically nothing, right? I mean, the dresses are meant to be revealed. I shouldn't say that, they've got clothes on. but they're. They're wearing deliberately, and then you look at their film credits. We have an entire generation that has been affected by that and it's affecting the children and the grandchildren. And those consequences are meant to draw people back to God. Uh, You cannot move away from God without the consequences happening. I think of the Israelites themselves um, who wandered in the wilderness that generation, but who else? Not just the generation that sinned, they wandered for 40 years, okay? Let's say there was a 15-year-old girl. She's not responsible for what her parents are doing. She is 55 years old when she goes into the Promised Land. I guarantee you in that culture, by then she could be a great-grandma, right? She could have kids at easily by 20, grandkids at 40, and at 55, she could be having great-grandkids. Who wandered in the wilderness? <laughs> children, their grandchildren, and their great-grandchildren. I was at school this week and on Monday a girl comes in and she says, Mr. Booker, I know the answer is going to be no. You always know it's a bad question when it starts that way. She goes, and I know it's my fault, but I need extra time on this project. So I'd given them a lot of time and I told them no exceptions has to be on Monday. And fortunately, God just held me back a little bit. And I said, why is that? Usually, I don't ask that question. I said, why? And she goes, well, I was going to do it over the weekend. I know I should have done it earlier. But on Friday, my parents told me that they were getting divorced. And she said, I could not concentrate all weekend. And so I told her, no, it has to. No, I'm just kidding. I told her, you you, you have some extra time. You have some extra time. Um, But... Um, And then she said, it's going to be okay. And I said, or she said, it's okay. And I said, you know, actually it's not. I said, "Uh, this is a big deal. And so then we prayed, which is one of the benefits of being at a Christian school. We prayed for her. I prayed for her um, and really prayed that she would see this in God and especially this, that people fail, but God is, is faithful. But my point in bringing that up is that we are affected, her children and maybe grandchildren will be affected by that, right? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. This isn't a one-time event. Um, what, what we do affects those who follow after us. Now, what I don't think it means, and I'll throw this out, is that everything your parents did ends up becoming a part of your sin nature. I knew somebody who believed that. He called it the law of generations. It was a teacher I taught with at Emmanuel. And he believed that any sin that his parents struggled with, he would struggle with. And any sin that his grandparents struggled with, he would struggle with, and his great grandparents. And I'm like, okay, I'm a math guy. (laughs) That means that all of the sins of 16 people you're gonna deal with. But here's the thing. Your grandparents, great grandparents had great grandparents, right? So all the sins of 16 times 6, 256 people, but, but wait a minute, your great-grandparents, great-grandparents had great-grandparents, right? So uh, we basically, and it was like, no, no, that's not what this is saying. This isn't saying that if your dad had an issue with anger that you're necessarily going to have that. It doesn't mean that if your dad was um, unfaithful to your, to your mom that you will be. That's not what this is saying. This, I think, is saying that God does this, but if you go to Proverbs, the whole point is that if you deprive a fool, I think it was Lincoln who said this, you deprive a fool of the consequence of their folly, all you do is fill the world with more fools. There's a reason that sin has consequences, and when we ignore those consequences, we move further and further away from God. And we're seeing it in our generation with the national debt with the entire, I mean, I think about the whole Hollywood system and the, what we, they've convinced us of, right? They've convinced us that what Harvey is doing is actually the right thing. as hard as it is in our lives, when we have to face consequences that are needed and hopeful that our generation will see, you do A, B, and C, this is where it's going to get to. Yeah, and and that takes sometimes generations, and that's the thing, is you, you, you unmoor yourself from certain standards, and a- after a while you look at the carnage, and finally, Uh, if there's going to be a revival, that's what's going to bring it about. So I actually think that both of these deal with the justice of God, but in different ways. The one is the natural outworking of the sins of the nation and how that affects the children and the grandchildren and the great grandchildren, and ultimately causing them to say, I need to turn back to God. And this is when somebody is Uh, unwilling to turn away. But both of them are aspects of his justice, but I do think they're different, different sides of his justice. Yeah.
1: Like everything, I'm just throwing that out there, but everything God does is is a creation. And even if that's applying justice, um, and we don't necessarily see it as creation, it's building something that's good. Or the opposite of that would be,
0: I do too. Okay, we are over time, so you can ponder that. But I do want to end by looking at this. Verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Um, this is the God that we worship. He's seen God and he worships God. Um, and then he, he once again entreats God to, to not remove his favor, even though they are a sinful people. Um, interesting little side point. And that is Moses does not describe his experience at all, which is actually pretty amazing. Uh, If you saw the glory of God, you would probably want to tell people about it. And this would be the place to tell it. And he doesn't say a word. So there's a whole bunch of different reasons that could be. It could be he was told not to. It could be that it was so indescribable that to try to describe it would take away from it. Um, But there's no description of what he sees, and probably for the very reason that what God wants us to focus on is his goodness. But all of this is a part of of God's goodness, and the result should be that we should worship. This is who we want to know. We want to know this deeper. We want to know it better. We have to understand that that comes from obedience to him. So sometime this week, just ask God, show me your glory. Let me know you better. I, I want to go deeper or higher, maybe would be a better way of saying it. I want, I want to expand my knowledge of you. Where am I saying no to you that's keeping me from moving forward? Maybe you know that already and maybe it's something that you don't know. Maybe you wonder why and God will, will, will guide you to that because that's what he wants for us. He wants the same thing that Moses got to see. He wants us to know, his, know him. Not academically, because this is all academic, right? You could know all of this doesn't mean you know God. Any person can read that passage. It's it's knowing it by experiencing it by by being um, in relation with Him. That's growing and deepening every day. So let's go ahead and close in prayer.